uh, this afternoon is the last one in our little mini-series that we entitled What's the Story? Uh, We are thinking about popular culture, slightly unusual thing, perhaps to be thinking about in church. And I have to say again at the start, in case anyone's listening to this and thinks I was just making all this stuff up, that I am very grateful to one of my course tutors, Ted Turnall, uh, who teaches uh, cultural and religious studies at the University in Prague. And uh, I must acknowledge that much of what we've been looking at together has been very heavily influenced by Ted's course. If you're interested in reading up further on this subject, now that we've finished the series, you can borrow the book. (laughs) Um, This is Ted's book that just came out last year, Popologetics. Um, It's a very readable book. There's lots of great examples of uh, his methodology being worked out with uh, different cultural texts. So if you want to borrow that... um, well, yeah, first come, first saved, I suppose, so don't all rush at once at the end. Um, I'm sure we could get some other copies as well. What I want to try and do today is conclude and give us some practical things to take away and to use in our lives. Um, and I want to touch towards the end on, a, on a, a slightly new initiative that we're going to try as a church family to engage a little with popular culture and practice some of the things that we've been developing and learning over the last three or four weeks. I wasn't really sure how much I would have to say by way of closing off. Because we've covered a lot in the last three or four weeks and if you you haven't been here for all of them, you can listen to them online. But as I've been preparing this week, there's a number of things that I want to try and do. So, three things, I suppose, in good good preachers there. Always have good three points, don't we? Uh, We're going to try and just summarise what we've been thinking about by looking at a part of the Bible that we haven't looked at yet. And then secondly, I want to examine practically the question, what kind of responses do Christians sometimes have to popular culture? And we'll try and have a little look at how Christians react and respond to popular culture. And then last of all, what I want to try and do is just develop very quickly at the end a very simple way of us critiquing or engaging with things that we see in popular culture. What I'd like to try and do is give you five questions to take away so that when you watch a film or listen to a song, you can effectively, in your head, be asking these five questions in an attempt to engage with what that piece of popular culture is doing. Okay? So first of all, we're going to begin with the Bible. And we're going to begin with a Bible phrase that's not actually in the Bible, but actually is in a strange way. Did you ever hear Christians say this? And I know the answer to this, because Ben used this phrase in his prayer. Did you ever hear Christians say this? In the world, but not of it. I was just talking with some of you during the week, and... Someone said to me, in your last talk in this series, you should tell us what that means practically. I was like, great, thanks for that. Because this is one of those phrases, isn't it, that Christians tend to know we're in the world, but not of the world. So someone said to me, we'd really like you to explain that to us practically. So that's a challenge. Um, You won't find that phrase in the Bible, as we've said it there. But it is in the Bible... 
And it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. And I think this phrase sums up, in a way, some of the things that we've been trying to say. But I do have a sneaky feeling, maybe you share this, that sometimes when we use this phrase, we don't quite mean what Jesus meant by it. And so we need, we need to just unpick that a little bit. Just before Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, he celebrated, as you'll know, the Jewish Passover with his disciples. We sometimes call it the Last Supper, don't we? And in John's Gospel, John's Gospel is pretty amazing, really, because there's 21 chapters in the whole Gospel, and yet five of them are... And that covers three years of Jesus' life and ministry, 21 chapters. And five chapters cover the Last Supper, one evening. So it kind of, it's almost like the pace of the book, you know, two and a half years, nearly three years, and then the whole thing slows right down, five chapters to cover just a few hours. And what happens in John 13 to 16 is that Jesus is teaching them for the last time he's going to be crucified tomorrow. And then in John 17, we have the record of Jesus' prayer. And we often talk about the Lord's Prayer being in Matthew as part of the Sermon on the Mount. But that was really a prayer that Jesus taught to the disciples. It should really be called the Disciples' Prayer. This really is the true Lord's Prayer because this is the prayer that Jesus prays. So, there's four chapters of Jesus teaching them, and then Jesus prays for them. Isn't that great? The Last Supper, he taught them, and he prayed for them. And John 17 is a little window into Jesus' relationship with his Father. Remember that Jesus is going to go to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension back to heaven to take his rightful throne. But these dear disciples are going to be left on earth. And so Jesus prays for them. So this is verse 11. Um, Jesus prays to his Father, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, my disciples, are still in the world. So there's the first half of our little sentence. And I am coming to you. And Jesus' prayer is, Holy Father, protect them. So they're in the world. The first thing Jesus notes is that they are going to need protection. The world is therefore a dangerous place for them to live. But they're in it. In the same prayer, Jesus uh, prays, a few sentences later I'm coming to you now but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I just want to summarize uh, that 
section with, with this uh, sentence. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So there's our sentence. They are in the world, and yet Jesus says a few sentences later, but they're not of the world. Again, Jesus prays there that they wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that they would know his joy and his protection. So this little phrase, in but not of, it is in the Bible, but it's not quite in that. It's, it's kind of there, but it's not said in that specific way. Jesus actually says that these dear disciples are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And I just want to pause and reflect on this just for a moment. It, it, don't you find it amazing that Jesus should say, I am not of the world? Because in the end, the Bible teaches, doesn't it, that this is ultimately his world. He made it. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he sustains it every moment by the word of his power. He brought the whole thing into being. And then he prays to his father and says, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. It's a big subject, this, but I want to really underline this. This world is, is not under someone else's authority and lordship. Jesus even said to Pilate, didn't he, at his trial, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you. And it's very hard for us, isn't it, to recognise the full extent of the lordship of Jesus when we see bad things happen. Bad thing happens and we can ask ourselves, is Jesus Lord? And sometimes we're tempted to say, well he is, but he didn't quite see that happen. He, he was kind of, he is Lord, but he, was, he wasn't really watching. I think one of the reasons we're tempted as Christians to do that, there's a, there's a famous philosophical phrase, isn't it, where philosophers will say something like this, if God were all loving, and if God were all powerful, then he would want to fix suffering, and he could fix suffering, and because suffering exists, that must mean that God is either not loving or not powerful. You get that kind of reasoning? And the temptation for us as Christians is therefore to say, when bad things happen, we know that God is loving. So maybe he didn't quite see what was going on here. Someone else is temporarily in charge. I want to suggest to you, some of you will know this in your own experience, that there is no comfort in denying the Lordship of Jesus. It might help us to deal with some philosophical criticism, but there's no comfort in denying that Jesus is Lord. What we need to know, don't we, is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is not absent but the, that he is right there with us in the midst of our suffering. We, d we often don't know the answer to the question why, 
He must have his own reasons for allowing certain things to happen. But if we're tempted to deny his utter lordship, that, that is a road to no comfort and a road away from comfort. What we need to know is that he is Lord and that he's with us in the suffering that we endure. So when Jesus says, I am not of this world, it is quite a surprising thing for him to say, isn't it? Because it's his world, he made it. He's not, excuse me, an alien who is entering a sort of foreign world that he doesn't know in order to conquer it. You know, like when, I don't know, the Second World War started when Germany invaded Poland. It wasn't theirs. <laughs> they invaded. It, it, this isn't Jesus coming to a foreign alien world. He's not invading enemy, enemy territory. He is the sovereign Lord. Another possibility could be that Jesus is saying that he's not a part of this creation. I'm not of this world. I'm from another place, from heaven. So even though this world is mine, I'm not of it. That might be more plausible. But on the other hand, it kind of denies that Jesus truly was born into this world. He did enter our human race. So for him to say, I'm not of this world, when in a very real way he is part of this world, would be maybe a bit odd. I think there's a clue in John 17 in the way Jesus prays. Because Jesus, um, Jesus says um, that the world, he, he has given them his word, and the world has hated them. Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. This is getting to the heart of it now, isn't it? That when Jesus speaks of the world then, he isn't just referring to creation. He isn't talking about planet Earth. What he's speaking about when he talks about the world is a mindset. He's thinking about the world in terms of its ideology, its way of doing things, its system. He's speaking of a world that although it is genuinely his, it is a world that doesn't want him. Jesus is in the world, it is his world, but on the other hand, he can never really be friends with a world that rejects him I think that's getting closer to what Jesus means when he says I'm not of this world and that's why he says to them well that's why he prays about them I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world in other words what he's referring to is the fact that the world is in a state of rebellion against him What is really interesting is that Jesus was sent into this world by his loving Father, sent into a world that didn't really want him. He, he came into it to win back to himself his enemies. 
He came to forgive, to reconcile, to bring peace, healing. He came into the world to restore broken, messed up people and to draw them into a relationship with himself. He came to transform rebellious people into worshippers. He's not invading a world that isn't his to conquer it. This is more of a rescue mission of him coming into a world that doesn't want... This is, the, this is the mission of a rightful king coming to reclaim what is really his, isn't it? And that's why Jesus says, as you sent me, I have sent them. What, what is happening here is that Jesus is not abandoning his friends and leaving them in the lurch. But he's asking his friends to carry on his mission, isn't he? As, the, as you've sent me into this world, I'm sending them. What is happening is that Jesus is sending his friends back out into the world. This is a mission for them in enemy territory. Christian people are here in the world but have this invisible connection to Christ. He says, yeah, I, I want them to know the full measure of my joy within them as they do battle in enemy territory. I, I wonder sometimes whether one of our great problems in the West is that this tension is completely lost on us because we, we've kind of lived in a largely Christianized culture, haven't we? And in many ways that's a good thing. The light and justice and social care and moral standards that are based on the Bible ultimately have been good for all people. But what happens is that there's then a kind of churchianity or a sort of Christianized morality that doesn't recognize this great tension that this is a world that really shakes its fist at Jesus. I, I think sometimes when we say as Christians, we're in the world and not of it. I think what we're often saying, if we're honest, is, what a lad off. I can just relax and ignore it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not part of this world. Isn't that good that Jesus just lets us off? We're in Christ. We don't have to worry about that nasty world outside. We take not of the world to mean the world is really evil and complicated, so let's leave it well alone. <laughs> but Jesus didn't say, as I have ignored the world, so I'm telling my friends to ignore the world. Did he? He said, as the Father has sent me into this messy, mixed up, complicated world, so am I sending them. There, there really is no excuse, is there, for us, if we claim to follow Christ, to neglect the world around us. It is kind of a contradiction. If we're following Christ, then we've been sent into a world that doesn't know him. Our God is a saving God, an ascending God, and whatever, it el whatever else Christianity might be, it most definitely isn't escapism. 
It just isn't escapism. We can leave that one alone. We're Christians. Well, in the light of this phrase, in the world, but not of the world, what have we been learning and saying about popular culture? We, um, yeah, we, <laughs> it's hard not to go over it all again, but we'll, we'll try not to. I'll just, a couple of points just to summarise. We've looked at popular culture from the perspective of creation, how it was meant to be. We've looked at it through the eyes of the fall, how is it twisted? And we've looked at it through the eyes of redemption. Where can we see signs of God's common grace? So our working definition, of po- po- we said that popular culture is about shared wow moments. Popular culture is about finding things that stimulate, excite, and fulfill us. And popular culture is popular precisely because we do that with other people. It's a shared wow moment. And that is how we create meaning. And that is how we make sense of our lives. We, we live in those shared meanings. And one observation here is that popular culture then is never just merely entertainment. But it is a fundamentally religious exercise. Popular culture is a kind of pseudo-worship. We said that culture is good because it reflects God's nature. I don't want to dwell on this, but it is amazing how that, de- that definition came at the end. But we started with the Trinity, and I, that definition works even for the Trinity. The Trinity is a shared wow moment. God, in his trying being, in awe, the, the pace of the Godhead, worshipping, in inverted commas, one another, loving one another, sharing that. And then when God says, create man in our image, we're created to reflect something of that worship, relationship, and meaning. Culture still works in that way. The machinery is still intact, but it's diverted away from the worship of God. And human culture that should celebrate the goodness and gladness of such a great God is now diverted away from God to celebrate and find meaning in all sorts of other substitute things. But because of redemption, culture is also a messy mixture, isn't it? Of grace and idolatry. There's much that's good and there's much that's not so good. It's not black and white quite in the way we'd perhaps like it to be. Culture is a messy mixture. And this, the church is not in the world, is in the world but not of the world. So the church mustn't simply just fall in love with the world, but neither must the church be completely disengaged from the world. One of the reasons we're entitled this little series, What's the Story? is because, really, it is all about comparing and assessing different worldviews, isn't it? Often we think that sharing our faith is about sharing facts, which it is in part. But actually what we're doing is much, much deeper than that. 
what we're really doing is comparing worldview stories. We're asking what is a Christian worldview and what is the story in popular culture and sharing our faith is really comparing different stories. So, for example, when we see in popular culture people finding meaning in loving relationships, we want to ask, why? Why is that valuable? Why is that meaningful? From a Christian perspective, it makes sense because God is relational and he made us that way. But what does it mean from a non-Christian perspective? Why should those things even matter if God isn't behind the design of those relationships. Why do we crave the fulfilment that we do? Why do we yearn for the things that we do? Why do we hate when things go wrong? Often we know that we do, and popular culture reflects all of those realities. But our question is, why should that make sense? In in a real sense, it only makes sense from within a Christian worldview. So the question always has to be, what's the story? What's the story? Well, secondly, I want us to think about what some of our reactions might be to popular culture. So when you think about popular culture, we could play word association, couldn't we? Popular culture, what's the first thing that springs into your mind? Well, here's five suggestions. See if these resonate with you. Possible reactions. Number one, whatever apathy I think it is fair to say that many Christians think what's it got to do with me (laughs) apathy I hope by now we've seen that being generally apathetic towards popular culture isn't really a good thing one writer suggests two key reasons why thoughtful Christians dismiss popular culture as unworthy of serious reflection. First of all, he says that many Christians believe I'm just not affected by it. It goes on over there somewhere and I'm living my Christian life over here and it's got nothing to do with me. I'm immune to the charms of popular culture. A second reason why Christians don't think as seriously as they should about popular culture is, he says, is because Popular culture is just trivial entertainment. Uh, We're above all that sort of thing. It's kind of over there. The problem for us, I don't want to dwell on this, is that popular culture is deeply pervasive. And as we've seen, it is religious in nature. And it does deeply affect all of us because it is all about evoking desire and creating those wow moments and giving us stories that make up the meanings and backdrops to our lives. And so you can't really be apathetic about popular culture. You can't ignore it. And none of us are unaffected by it. A third possibility, this writer said, is that many Christians probably feel that they should think about popular culture more, but they don't really know how to. And that's why we're doing this series. So that's good, isn't it? We'll come to that in a minute. Here's the second... um, Here's a second reaction that Christians can have. Oh, popular culture, it's all a big mess. It stinks. It's horrible. It's all evil. And I don't want to be contaminated by it. I think this is a very understandable reaction, isn't it? 
Many parents know this. I don't necessarily like it when my children are watching TV unattended because you've no idea what's going to come on. So some Christians, very understandably, I think, will decide, I'm just not going to even have a TV. I'm just going to avoid popular culture altogether. It can't do me any good as a Christian, so I'm just going to avoid it. Now, it's complicated this, isn't it? There are occasions when avoidance is the right strategy because there are things in popular culture that we should just run away from. But it's more complicated, I think, than this. I was chatting with some of you through the course of this series. More than one person has said to me, what about Philippians chapter 4, verse 8? Do you know that verse? It says this, Paul's writing to Christians there. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How can you argue with that? It's right there in the Bible. Be pure and just avoid the evils of culture. However, on that basis we would need to avoid much of the Bible itself, wouldn't we? How do you reconcile Genesis, for example, with its portrayal of rape, incest, violence? That's just at the beginning. If we're only to think about what is lovely, we would have to take out certain passages from God's word for fear of being contaminated, wouldn't we? So it's not quite as simple. I think part of the answer is that when the Bible portrays these things, what, it, what the Bible's doing is dealing with evil honestly and realistically and showing what the true consequences of it is. It's never gratuitous or exploitative. And there is a sense in which Truthfully depicting sin and evil can have a redemptive power. We need to see evil for what it is. The truth and glory of redemption only makes sense when we understand the horror, in a sense, of our true condition. So the danger of this response is, is actually a tendency to sanitise life and to fail to face reality. What's that TV programme that talks about property? Um, that's what I was thinking of. Location, location, location. It rem- who, who was the politician who said something similar to that, was it? Education, education, education. Does Tony Blair say that? Education, education. We like repeating things in threes, don't we? Why, why has that just popped into my head? The, because, I want to say this, when, when we look into popular culture, the key thing is not so much content, but context. 
context, context. What we're interested in is asking, what is the story? What is the meaning? What worldview is this cultural work conveying? The truth is that much of what we think is innocent too, because it doesn't have violence or bad language in it, can often contain very subversive stories that look innocent. I'm thinking of even Disney films. My my kids have watched Disney films. We've watched Disney films. Never in bad language. No nudity or violence. But the underlying message of all those films is, believe in yourself. You're number one. And what could be a more subversive message to the gospel than that? It sounds very positive and cheerful so there's no bad content but the context needs unpicking what's the story all the time hey we need to be quick here's a third thing Uh, we could say loads of stuff about this but here's a third one we could be very scornful of its shallowness this is a different thing isn't it this is the attitude that says we're above all that tragedy popular culture popular culture is trivial and transient it doesn't last or endure what we need is to cultivate good taste classical music great historic works of art and literature we need to be very careful that we're not seduced by this tacky nonsense If we do, we'll lose the ability to discern what is really worthy. Can you see what I'm portraying there? So there are those people who would draw a very sharp distinction between high culture and low culture. Politically, there are people who argue that popular culture is just like the new opium that dulls the masses. You're all being lulled to sleep by mass media we've lost the ability to be critical and so society decays and goes down the moral slide others decry popular culture because it's all about money mass media is just commercialisation gone mad all, all these things have little bits of truth in them One of the things that I found really interesting reading up on this subject is all of these guys, they all seem to have a romantic idea that in the past there was a golden age when everything was better. And one day, if the Lord spares us, people will look back on this age and say, oh, wasn't it? I wish we lived then. It was marvellous then. It was a golden age. We always seem to hark back 50 years before or 100 years before and think it was better then. We're going down the tubes now. There is much that is trashy in popular culture. But if we succumb to that kind of elitism that dismisses whole swathes of society as being too stupid to think for itself, It all starts to sound a bit arrogant, doesn't it? And if what we're really saying is we're above all that, 
we're not going to be so inclined to engage with where people are, are we? The reason popular culture is popular is because it resonates with people at the level of their desires. And if people in our culture are being affected by it, we shouldn't just go, poor them. We should be asking, why? Why? Why does it resonate? What is really going on in our culture for those things to even be popular? Fourthly, um, popular culture is just overwhelming. It is a question for you. It'd be interesting to take a little poll here. I, I probably not. I probably shouldn't. If I ask you this question, what is better, words or pictures? What would you say to that? Lots of pictures up there. What's better, words or pictures? There are people, both non-Christians and Christians, who believe that the age that we now live in is a dangerous place because technology has made the whole world a visual feast. People used to read books, but now kids have no attention span because they're bombarded with so many images. What do we do with that? Anxiety about information, visual overload. Oh, if only we could go back to the 1700s when people read <laughs> and there were no pictures. <laughs> what do we do with that? Popular culture, it's very visual. We do need to be concerned, don't we, about saturation levels. We need to guard against becoming so fixed on our computers and screens. But we also need to be very careful not to suggest that technology itself is somehow intrinsically bad. Like everything else in life, it really comes down to how we use it, doesn't it? It's not an evil thing in itself. It really comes down to how we use it. I think many people suffer with anxiety about information overload. And that is a common response. We're going to leave it well alone because it's too complicated. All of these three reasons are very negative. But here's a fifth that is more positive. Oh, that looked like Jai that when I first saw that picture. An older version of him with a beard. But, um, some Christians are very enthusiastic about popular culture and want to celebrate it. Um, it's brilliant. There are some theologians now who are beginning to say that popular culture is so revealing of where people's hearts are that we should listen to it, we should embrace it, and we should even develop our theology from it. I don't want to dwell on this. I hope that this is... Um, Maybe such a major issue for us, but I just want you to be aware that when conversations take place between orthodox biblical theology and what's happening in popular culture, we just need to be careful that that conversation is a two-way street. Because what tends to happen in some churches 
is that popular culture is allowed to criticise, critique our theology, so our theology changes, but that conversation isn't allowed to happen the other way around. We need to be careful, don't we, that, that, that we're, we're allowing our biblical theology to critique our culture as well as the other way around. That's, that's not a two-way street when that only happens one way. The interesting thing about all these responses, you know, is that they're all motivated by good concerns. So I don't want to appear to be critical here. The first, horrified at its evil, that's motivated, isn't it, by a concern for purity. The second is motivated by a concern for quality and thoughtfulness and excellence. The third, a concern for simplicity. But we need to make sure that these good concerns don't cause us to be so dismissive of culture that we disengage from it. That's the plea. And the last item there, it is good for us to engage with culture, but we need to make sure that we're not so enthusiastically embracing culture that we fail to critique it properly using the Bible. These traits could be individual responses. Maybe some of them resonate with you. But they're also indicative of the attitude of maybe churches as a whole too, aren't they? I know plenty of churches that are rightly concerned about purity, excellence, simplicity. And yet sometimes they can fail to be engaged with anyone outside of their own circle. I've suggested that I know churches as well that are very missional and seeking to be relevant. But they've forgotten to critique the culture and speak from the Bible story prophetically into that culture. So there's a few ideas for you. Very, very quickly, I want to give you these five questions and then we'll, we'll just close with a couple of comments. What are we going to do with all this? Well, here's five questions. When you're looking out into culture, a piece of literature, a film, a song, maybe these are five good questions to keep in mind. The first one is very obvious. What's the story? The whole series has been called that. The first thing we need to do when we look out into culture is ask, what is the basic plot that's going on here? Who are the characters? How do they develop? What do they discover? What's the plot? What's the story? Second question. What does this imaginative world mean? What are the values in this imaginative world? How does this world makes sense of life what is the mood and ambiance within this imaginative world and that leads on to two other questions that probably resonate with what we've been thinking about in the light of the fact that culture is often a messy mixture of good signs of common grace and signs of idolatry we should thirdly ask what is good and true and beautiful in this world how does this world point to the good things that God has designed and built into human life? And how do these good things make sense in this imaginative world? But we should also ask fourthly, what is false and ugly and perverse in this world? Where in this world are there lies about the nature of reality? Where in this world is God excluded or substituted for something else? 
And what are the ultimate consequences of doing that within this world? Very often, the answers to questions three and four will be the same thing. Because the thing that is good and true is often the very thing that is turned into an idol and made into an ultimate thing by our sinful, selfish human nature. So often there's a strong connection between three and four. That's where we see what's good, and then we see it twisted and subverted to replace God. We worship the gift rather than the giver, in other words. And the last question is, how would you apply the gospel to the things that are happening within this world? The gospel is not just about Jesus dying for our sins. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And this message of good news is for the whole of life. And so the gospel, we should expect the gospel to be relevant to all of the things that we see in this popular culture. How does the gospel answer and satisfy the, devo- the desires that are evoked in this imaginative world? So, we've been building up to those five questions. And we're going to have a little practice. One of the things that we'd like to do, um, it's not the only thing we're doing. It's not perhaps even the most important thing that we're doing. But we're going to try and host some evenings where together we can maybe watch a popular, well-known film and then try to engage with it and see what we can learn about how it speaks into popular culture. And we're hoping that these evenings will be good fun and that they'll be relevant to Christians and to people who are maybe curious as well about the Christian faith and just wanting to explore Uh, think through faith issues so make a note of those five questions and uh, we're going to plan to do the first one over Easter weekend Easter Saturday in the evening and we're going to have a guest service the next day so maybe some of our non-Christian friends who come will be very welcome to come the next day as well to an evangelistic uh, service on Easter Sunday if you'd like a little bit of homework Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. So if you don't, just ignore this part. I've been been doing this as I've been driving around in my car this week. um, Just listening to a song that struck me very powerfully. In the recent Brit Awards, there's uh, an artist, a lady called Emily Sande. Uh, She won the best female solo artist. And she also won the best album for an album called Our Version of Events. So I think she qualifies as being part of popular culture. Two Brit Awards. I mean, that's pretty good, isn't it? There she is, a little picture of her with her nice hair. There's a song on this album called River. And it is a very poignant and beautiful ballad. And she, she really has a stunning voice. So if you want some homework, see if you can find that song on YouTube or somewhere. And have a stab at listening to it and trying to work through those five questions in relation to this song, River. And the album's called Our Version of Events. And let me know how you get on.
and we can talk about it because that's been going around in my mind this week. One last challenge and then we're done. I want to make sure as we close that we get this idea that this process is one that we should also be applying to our own hearts too and not just to popular culture. The church as a whole and our lives as Christian people are also often a messy mixture of grace and idolatry. And I want to challenge all of us to think, not just about popular culture out there, but to think in these terms about our own lives and hearts too. Where is the goodness and grace of God evident in my life? And what are the idols and refuges that I often flee to instead of God? For example, work is good. But if work begins to define my identity... I'm going to be in danger of becoming a workaholic and neglecting rest and taking for granted the people who are closest to me. In other words, what are the things that I'm relying on to find fulfillment, identity, and how can I apply the truths of the gospel to those things? Am I growing in my appreciation of what God has done and is doing and will do? And is my grip on other things being loosened and my grip on him being strengthened? And as a church family together, are we constantly renewing and reforming our behaviour as we learn from God's word together? And is his grace really shaping our church family as we trust him together? Are we experiencing deepening and authentic relationships with one another and finding God's meaning for our lives together? Are we asking ourselves, what's the story? And are we aligning our story with the ongoing story of what Jesus, the Lord Christ, is doing in his good but sin-spoiled world?